Lord Jesus, I ask that by your Holy Spirit, these words that you spoke so many years ago would catch fire in our hearts, that they would be to us life and glory, and that we would be changed by them. And Lord, I know that I can't make this happen, and so I'm asking you to make this happen. Heavenly Father, we know your heart to glorify your Son, and so I'm praying, Lord, that that boundless, eternal, endless joy overflowing into all creation of love that you have for your Son would spill over into this gathering right now as we would catch a taste of the goodness of Jesus and that to give up our lives for him would seem like a small thing in exchange for the treasure that he is. Do this for us, I pray, O oh God. For Jesus' sake, truly, amen. You can have a seat. Family is everything. Have you ever seen that phrase before? Maybe as a, a caption on a cheery Instagram shot. Maybe on a magnet for sale in a truck stop gift shop. Maybe cross-stitched on a wall in your grandma's kitchen next to a Thomas Kincaid print. What do you think about that phrase? Do you think family is everything? There's no doubt that to many people in today's world, family is everything. Family is a, a really big deal at the very least. To many people, family relationships are the most important relationships. Family ties are the closest ties. Family loyalties are the strongest loyalties. For many people, being together as a family is one of the most important experiences in life, if not the most important, and much will be sacrificed in order to keep a family together in some form or another. Family is everything. Now, if that's true for some people in our world today, it was most definitely true for many of the people in Jesus' day. Karen Reeder wrote that in the worlds of Jesus and the Gospels, the family was a social, economic, political, and theological cornerstone of life. This was true for the Roman world, where the family was the basic social unit. And it was especially true in the Jewish world in which Jesus ministered, where the family was there the basic unit of Israel's religion. Jewish people in the first century did not follow God as individuals as much as they followed God as families. Their family connection to Abraham was a really big deal. In the understanding of many, that was part and parcel of their connection to God, was the fact that they had a family line that went all the way back to Abraham. Their connection to their family and through their family to Abraham was the basis for all of this. And, and even beyond some of these religious dimensions, every part of society 
in the first century Jewish culture came down to the family. Uh, even finances, the whole financial system was built around family property, family inheritances. Loyalty to parents was, as one commentator described it, one of the most deep-seated convictions in the minds of Jesus' hearers. Loyalty to parents was one of the most deep-seated convictions in the minds of Jesus' hearers. That's from Leon Morris. So I want you to think of the most close-knit family that you know. Okay, the kind of family who would hang a plaque on their wall that says family is everything and mean it. Okay. Now turn that dial up a few more clicks, and maybe you're just there getting close to how serious and important family was to the people of Jesus' world. When we understand that, we'll be able to understand just how radical and offensive and countercultural these words of Jesus are from Matthew chapter 10 that we just read together. And once we see that, then maybe we'll be better equipped to hear what Jesus has to say to you and I today about family and about himself and about what it truly means to be Jesus' disciple. Let's review for a moment where these words come. Today we're finishing up a series in Matthew chapter eight, chapters 8 to 10 called The Spread of the Kingdom. We called the series that because throughout chapter 8 and 9 we saw Jesus traveling around, spreading the message of the kingdom, giving a preview of the kingdom in the works that he was doing. And then, and then in, uh, there's a theme throughout this time as well was mounting opposition to Jesus coming from the religious leaders. Then in chapter 10, Jesus began to prepare his 12 apostles for their first missionary trip. And much of the teaching in chapter 10 uh, has revolved around the difficulty that Jesus' apostles are going to face as they go out as his ambassadors, as his messengers, as they go out to proclaim the message of the kingdom. Beginning in verse 14, so in chapter 10, verse 14, on down to verse 25, they've been prepared for rejection and for persecution. Verse 21 said that this persecution will even descend to the level of family. In case we've heard this already. In fact, even earlier in chapter 9, we heard Jesus tell the man, let the dead bury their own dead. You follow me in regards to burying his father. So we've seen this, this Jesus versus family theme Back there, we saw it in chapter 10, verse 21, when Jesus said, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. You will be hated by all, including your family. Okay, so Jesus has not hid from his disciples the difficulty that they're going to face, and even coming from their family as they, as they serve and follow him. Now, the point of all this hasn't been to make his disciples afraid of what's coming. And and that was what last week was about. Last week was about three reasons to not be afraid. And and there was some real comfort there as Jesus reminded his disciples that, that they were loved by him, that everything that happened to them was a part of his sovereign plan and, and that everything that was a secret was going to come out into the open and, and that rather than fearing man, they should, they should fear God. He who knows and loves his children very dearly. Now, with all that in the background, today we come to the final verses in chapter 10 and the final verses in this whole teaching section and and really the final verses in this series in Matthew. And these verses open up with these words, Do not think, 
I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now we've heard Jesus use similar language before. Remember Matthew 5.17? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So we've heard Jesus say the same kind of thing before. And, and just like when we studied Matthew 5.17, when we get to Matthew 10.34, we should ask, why does Jesus need to say this? Why does he need to say, don't think I've come to bring peace? Like, why would people think that he's come to bring peace? See, see what we're saying? Like, Jesus doesn't have to correct this misunderstanding unless the misunderstanding is there. Why would people think that Jesus had come to bring peace? Well, for starters, how about the Bible? The prophets had long foretold that the age of the Messiah would be an age of peace. Remember Isaiah 9, which we studied last spring? For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire, and his name shall be called Prince of Peace. That's what Jesus is going to be called. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Do you remember the angels at Jesus' birth? It's not in Matthew's gospel, but Luke 2.14. Glory to God on the highest, in the highest, and on earth, what? Among those with whom he is pleased. Peace. So if the disciples thought Jesus had come to bring peace, were they that mistaken? I mean, wasn't peace the Messiah's mission? And yet, as he prepares them for their first major role, in his mission here in chapter 10, hasn't chapter 10 been all about conflict? All about persecution? All about opposition? So what's going on? Where's the peace? So it's, it's not too surprising that Jesus has to address this topic. So if the reign of the Messiah was supposed to be a reign of peace, if Jesus was the Prince of Peace, then why all this persecution? Then why would Jesus say verse 34? Why the sword? What's the reason for the sword? Well, let's remember a few things. First, let's remember that through Jesus, the kingdom of God was at hand. The reign of God was breaking into the world. But unlike what many people expected, the reign of God was not breaking in all at once. It's not like human history came to a close, the reign of God began, all evils dealt with, it's all Jesus reigning, and that's it. Okay, We know that that's not how it happened. That's how people thought it was going to happen. But instead, what we see is that the kingdom of God is coming in bit at a time. It's this already but not yet idea that we've seen many, many times throughout the New Testament. And for a period of time, the reign of God, the kingdom of God, and the kingdoms of men, the kingdoms of people, run alongside of each other. Okay, You want an example of that? Look at this gathering. We're a bunch of people here gathered under the authority of King Jesus. This is a little outpost of the kingdom of God. And yet we are also, at least most of us, citizens of Canada. So there's this dual citizenship idea going on. 
Okay, this is what people weren't expecting. People didn't know that it was going to happen this way. So one day, Jesus is going to be the only king. There'll be no, no one opposed to his rule. All the prophecies will be fulfilled. But until that day, even though Jesus is king, not everybody recognizes that. Not everybody acknowledges that. In fact, in this world, during this season of already but not yet, many people are opposed, violently opposed, to God's reign through Jesus. And that's where the conflict comes from. The sword that Jesus speaks about here in verse 34 is not because Jesus' disciples are violent people who use the sword to convince other people to be Christians. That's not how we work. In fact, he's told us back in the Beatitudes that his disciples are to be meek, merciful peacemakers. So we don't have a sword that we use to attack other people. The conflict that Jesus is pointing to here comes because the kingdom of God is a threat to the kingdoms of people. People don't want Jesus to reign over them. People don't want Jesus to be king. They want their own kingdoms. And so they react often violently against those who are a part of the kingdom of Jesus. People will react violently against those who remind them that Jesus is king and he's got a claim on their life. Think about the message that his disciples are to announce. Think about the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. And when we announce that message, that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, that includes you, a lot of people aren't going to like that. And they will shoot the messenger, sometimes literally. That's where the sword comes from. So the sword that Jesus is talking about here in verse 34 is not the sword of violence that we bring against other people. Rather, it's the sword of division that separates those who have given Jesus their allegiance to those who refuse to give their allegiance to Jesus. Those who are all in with Jesus and those who are opposed to Jesus will find themselves sharply divided as if by a sword. And Jesus explains this in verses 34 to 30, 35 to 36. For, here's his explanation. This is what the sword looks like. A sword of division. I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. This is startling language. Startling language. I mean, we've been warned about this already back in verses 21 and 22. But Jesus is saying that by choosing to follow him, we'll be hated by all, including sometimes our closest family. When we give our allegiance to Jesus, when we bow our knees to his reign, this will provoke hatred and violence from those whom we have nurtured or been nurtured by. Mothers will have their daughters, who they spent years raising, turn on them. People's homes will become battlegrounds 
as their family becomes their enemies. So you might be thinking, is Jesus saying that I might get into a situation where I have to choose between him or my family? That's exactly what Jesus is saying. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. 37. So now we're in our second point. If you're following along on the outline, Jesus or family. Verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. If you love your mom or dad more than you love Jesus, then you don't have what it takes to be a follower of Jesus. That's a way of getting at that language of worthy of me. If you love your mom or dad more than Jesus, you don't have what it takes to follow Jesus. If you love your kids more than you love Jesus, you don't have what it takes to be a follower of Jesus. That's just what he's saying. This is a hard pill to swallow because for many evangelical Christians, following Jesus and having a good family life are basically the same thing. Now, sometimes we get to follow God with our families, and when that happens, that's a wonderful thing. I'm raising my kids to follow the Lord, and, and, and that's a wonderful thing when that happens. But I wonder how much of the time it's really just about having a nice family life and we add Jesus because he kind of makes our family life a little bit better. I don't think this is true in our church, but I, I wonder how many other churches, families come to church not because mom and dad love God, but because they think a little bit of Jesus will be good for their kids. And I wonder how many of those families will stop going to church when their kids become teenagers and that church actually tries to hold them accountable for their lifestyle decisions. In fact, I know how many of them will stop coming to church because I've seen it happen again and again. You touch the kids, you suggest that they've done something wrong, and the whole family is out of there because it was never about Jesus. Now, if this is a hard pill for us to swallow... How much harder would this have been for Jesus' original followers in their Jewish environment where family was everything? And yet Jesus says to them, me first. If you want to be my disciple, I come first. I come before your family, before your mom and your dad, and even before your children. Your allegiance to me comes first and displaces all other allegiances. That is what Jesus is saying. It's hard for us to fathom just how radical this teaching would have been to these first people. I don't think we can fathom, but maybe, maybe you can taste it a little bit. Perhaps some of you might be swallowing hard right now because you might be thinking just what it might really look like to love Jesus more than your family. To truly give Jesus all of your allegiance and to follow him wholeheartedly, even if that means a painful break in relationships with the people that you're closest with. Now to some of you, what I'm describing here might not feel so much like a way of living. To some of you, 
Choosing Jesus over your family might sound more like a way of dying. This might sound like death. Choosing Jesus over your family might feel like death. Was well, it any surprise to hear what Jesus says next? Verse 38. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. I don't think we should miss how seamlessly these two verses flow together. Jesus goes seamlessly from a discussion on loving your family to a discussion on death. Don't miss that. And yes, verse 38 is about death. Jesus' audience knew what take up your cross and follow means. They had seen people take up their crosses in real life, and they knew that when you took up your cross, you were walking out to be killed on that cross. That's what crosses were for. They were for dying. We need to think. We have a cross here. This is, this is like having an electric chair in the corner of our, of our church or, or a gallows with a noose hanging there. Okay? Crosses were for killing people in the most slow, awful, painful way imaginable. It's easy for us to forget that because we, we use this phrase about that's my cross to bear to sort of talk about like, oh, I have these little things in my life that are kind of hard. That's my cross to bear. That's not really what it means. Bearing your cross means that you're, you're, you're going to die. You're walking to your death. Dying on a cross was not just like an electric chair or a noose, though. Crucifixion was the most agonizing, shameful way that anybody could die. When, when someone had a family member die by crucifixion, it put a stain on the family's reputation that could never be erased. They were marked as the family that had, had someone die that way. Dying on a cross was the worst thing that could happen to anybody ever. Truly your worst nightmare. And Jesus says that his disciples are those who will carry their crosses and follow him. It's not just about choosing Jesus over your family. It's about choosing Jesus over life. Because discipleship is about dying. That's what he's telling us. Now, is Jesus talking about real death here? Well, the answer is yes. Crosses were used for killing. That's what they were for. Crosses are for dying. And, and interestingly, this is the first indication in Matthew's gospel of the way in which Jesus is going to die for his people. That he's going to die on a cross as a sacrifice for their sins. This is the first indication we've got. Jesus was killed for us on a real cross. History suggests most of the 12 apostles died in the same way. Throughout the past 2,000 years, millions of Christians have died for their faith in Jesus, many in extremely painful ways, and many by crucifixion. And so it's no question here that Jesus is telling his followers that they must be ready to follow him that far. If we are not willing to follow Jesus to a literal cross, then we're not able to be his disciples. Richard France, in his commentary about this verse, wrote, This is the prospect that Jesus holds out before any worthy disciple. A savage death 
and public disgrace. Jesus himself will literally go through that experience and he offers his followers the prospect of the same. Now, please understand, Jesus is not just saying that his disciples have to be willing for that and that's it. I've heard this passage taught that way several times before. You have to be willing for martyrdom. Maybe I've even taught it that way before. I mean, that's certainly true, but there's a whole lot more than that here. Because Jesus' audience knew that when you took up a cross, that's when the death march began. When you took up a cross, when you carried a cross on your shoulder, that's when your life was effectively over. There was no going back. The public shame, the physical pain had already begun as the condemned person walked through a jeering crowd, carrying the heavy cross piece, already viewed by many as less than human as they marched out to die. And hasn't the context of the previous verse been about surrendering our closest and most precious relationships to Jesus as we follow him, the path of discipleship? So in other words, Jesus is telling us more than just that we have to have a willingness to die for him, as important as that is, Jesus is calling us to a life of dying, a living death. He's calling us, in the language of verse 39, to lose our lives for his sake to lay down our lives, our closest relationships, and follow him on the death march of discipleship. Exposed on all sides to the shame and the ridicule of the world. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Now at this point, it's not hard to imagine someone saying, you know, I'm not so sure I'm into that. That sounds pretty terrible to me. I'm not sure a life of death is what I signed up for. I thought that God just loved me and had a wonderful plan for my life. This sounds kind of different. If that's the case, then please hear the next words of Jesus in our passage today. In verse 39, Jesus offers us a warning and a promise. And what he says here brings this whole passage into focus. We can't miss this as we think about Jesus or eternal loss in verse 39 and following. First, hear the warning. Whoever finds his life will lose it. If we reject all this talk about crosses and death and losing our lives, we say, this sounds ridiculous. I'm not interested in this. And we go to try to find a life for ourselves somewhere. It's not going to last. We're going to end up losing it. We're going to end up losing whatever life we find apart from Jesus. Any life that you find apart from Jesus, you will lose. That's what he's saying here. Jesus has warned us many times our eternal destiny hangs on our response to him. And he's pointing us in the same direction here in verse 39. Go ahead. Find an easy life apart from Jesus. It will slip through your fingers and you will face eternal loss. But there's a promise here in the second half of the verse. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
When we pledge our allegiance to Jesus, choosing to love him more than even our closest relationships, when we pick up our crosses and follow him, enduring pain and public shame as we walk behind him on the death march of discipleship, that's where we find life. That's where actual life is found. And perhaps you're wondering, what does that mean? How can life be found in death? Well, there's at least two ways that we can answer this question. First is to consider what Jesus is saying about eternal life. All throughout Matthew's gospel, we've seen many times Jesus pointing to this idea of your best life later. And so this is this idea that we can lose our life today. We can be lonely and in pain today because what Jesus has promised us in eternity is going to be is going to more than make up for it a billion trillion times over. Okay, so that's one way of looking at it. Life in eternity. There is a judgment day coming which will make everything clear. That's kind of the direction Jesus points to in verses 40 to 42 where he talks about rewards. For people to welcome in the disciples and give them a reward would expose them to shame and pain and ridicule. But Jesus promises rewards that will more than make up for it all. So, what would we rather have? A bit of life now and lose it all for eternity or a bit of death now only to gain true life in Christ? As Richard France said, discipleship is not a matter of life and death. It is much more serious than that. Eternal stakes, eternal loss, eternal rewards. But second, it's not just about eternity. This is about Jesus. Life is found in Jesus. When we come to know Jesus, we realize that I would rather, like we sang this morning, have Jesus than anything this world affords today. I'd rather have a cross on my back and Jesus in front of me than nothing on my back and Jesus nowhere to be found because Jesus is better than anything this world can offer me. Life is found in suffering alongside of Jesus, putting our feet in his bloody footprints because we love him. And that's where our life is going to be. We wouldn't want any other life. So those who lose their lives for his sake find it because they find Jesus and that's life. So this is not about gritting our teeth and bearing it. It's not about saying, okay, fine, I'll put up with suffering for Jesus if I can, you know, get a decent afterlife. No. Life starts now as we look to Jesus and we follow in his footsteps and we gain him, him. So we walk through the passage and we get now to some really focused application. And this is the conclusion, not just to this message, but to this whole series. And so we're going to take our conclusion in three parts this morning. First, the big picture. I want to make sure we don't miss the big picture here. As I was preparing for this application, I wondered, do we need to give some examples of what all this might practically look like? Practically, what might it look like for you to have to choose Jesus over your family? Okay. What, you know, could make up some situations of where you got a choice between making your family happy or making Jesus happy. You got a choice between giving into the expectations of your family or giving in to the commands of Jesus. Like, and I thought we could do that. 
But I'm pretty sure that most of us fairly easily could think of some examples where our family wants one thing and Jesus in his word has told us another and we have to think. And if you can't think of any examples, just keep on reading the Bible. And I'm not saying this to be funny. Keep on reading the Bible and the examples will come up as you realize, oh, my family wants me to do this, but Jesus wants me to do this. And those don't go together. So I have to choose. It shouldn't be hard for us to think of examples like this. And so instead of giving ourselves a bunch of examples, I want us just to focus on the big picture. Here's the big picture. Being a disciple of Jesus is not something, it's everything. Now I'm going to explain what I mean by that. There are people who will say things like, my faith is really important to me. Having a relationship with Jesus is a really important part of my life. That's, that's what I mean by, by Jesus being something to you. Oh, Jesus is important to me. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate going to church on Sunday. It's this idea of having a relationship with Jesus alongside of several other relationships, like to your family, to your friends, to your workplace, to your hobbies, and you kind of balance them out. You know, you sometimes give a little bit more to Jesus and a little bit more to them, and, and you kind of try to make them all happy. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Being a disciple of Jesus is everything. When we become a disciple of Jesus, our entire identity becomes him. We pledge him our allegiance, and nothing else competes with that, not even our relationship with our family. We follow King Jesus, even if it creates division, opposition, and even violence from those with whom we have the most in common. And this is not just something that radical disciples of Jesus or missionaries kind of work their way up to after 30, 40 years. Please hear this. This is ground level, step one, being a Christian because of the call of Jesus. What did Jesus say? Whoever, whoever loves father and mother more than me is not willing to be my disciple. This is for everybody. And Jesus demands our all from the moment we become his disciple. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Discipleship, some of you might know that as the cost of discipleship, he wrote this, Jesus' call itself already breaks the ties with the naturally given surroundings in which a person lives. It is not the disciple who breaks them. Christ himself broke them as soon as he called. Christ has untied the person's immediate connections with the world and bound the person immediately to himself. No one can follow Christ without recognizing and affirming that that break is already complete. Do you hear what Bonhoeffer is saying here? It's not like we've got a connection to Jesus and a connection to our family. No, Jesus has broken all those other connections and we just have a connection with Jesus. That's it. And if we love our families, we do that because Jesus has said to do that. And so loving our families is a part of our love for Jesus. But it's not like love for Jesus over here, love for our families over here. It's just love for Jesus is everything. And our families is a part of that. See, this is why, this is why Paul said that um, a woman was free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Right? So you're not allowed to have relationships outside of your relationships with Jesus. This is even why children in Ephesians 6.1 are told to obey your parents in the Lord. 
See, even for children, it's not like you obey your parents and you obey God. No, it's everything is the Lord. And if you obey your parents, that's a part of your relationship with the Lord because he told you to. Do you see this? So we got to get this. Our relationship with Jesus is everything. And every other relationship flows through our relationship with Jesus or not at all. Jesus is everything. Our second step here, let's make this really personal. Jesus has made a number of whoever statements in this passage. And I don't want us to miss that these whoever statements include us. So let's make this really personal. Do you love your father or mother more than you love Jesus? If so, then Jesus says that you're not worthy of him. You don't have what it takes to be his follower. Do you love your son or daughter more than Jesus? If so, then Jesus says you're not worthy of him. You're not able to be his disciple. Let's remember here that the love here is not just talking about a warm, fuzzy feeling. This love is revealed in the practical decisions you make when your loyalty to your family collides with your loyalty to Jesus. When Jesus and your family want something different, who wins? Have you taken your cross and followed Jesus? If not, Jesus says you're not worthy of him. You're not able to be his disciple. Have you tried to find a life for yourself apart from Jesus? If so, Jesus says, you're going to lose it. Guaranteed. But, have you lost your life for the sake of Jesus? If so, then Jesus says, you're going to find your life. Real life awaits you. Feel the potent force of the words of Jesus this morning. To be a disciple is to pledge our unconditional allegiance to Jesus, and nobody gets any other. It's all him. Please understand, I I don't think I have to say this, but this isn't about salvation by works. This is not about earning our salvation. Arthur Pink said it the best when he said, salvation is a free gift, but an empty hand must receive it and not a hand which still tightly grasps the world. Jesus offers us himself as a free gift for all of eternity, and receiving that gift with empty hands, we drop everything else. So let's come now to our final point, which is our response. How do you respond to this today? And I wonder, I wonder if there's four possible ways that we could respond to this passage this morning. Some of you might be wondering, If the terms are this steep, am I even a Christian? Am I even a Christian? And I want you to know that I'm not going to rush for you to give a quick answer to that question. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Contrary to some people's opinions, it's not bad to ask the question, do I really know Christ? It's not bad. 
We should not assume for a minute that just because we go to church, even just because we're involved in church, even just because we like Jesus a little bit, that we're saved. Maybe you've been a religious person and Jesus is calling you today to lay down your life for him for the first time. Wouldn't that be wonderful if that were to happen? Don't hesitate. Come to Jesus. Lose your life for his sake and find it in his nail-pierced hands. There's a second possible response today. Maybe you hear these words and, and you know that you know Christ, but, but you, you feel convicted. It's like, wow, I've really allowed other interests, other loyalties to compete with my love for Jesus. I've tried to hide my cross. I've set it down sometimes. I've taken breaks. And you're feeling the pangs of conscience now. I want you to know that's a mercy. That's the, the, our conscience is one of the ways that the Lord draws us back to himself. So rejoice in that. Rejoice in his love for you as he helps you to, to, to feel that. Confess to Jesus your confused loyalties. Confess to him your sin. Receive the forgiveness that he died on the cross to buy for you. And come back to him. And keep on coming back to him. There's a third way you could respond to this passage today. Maybe you've heard all these words and you're thinking, that's not for me. No way. If that's the stakes, I'm not in. I don't mind a little religion on Sunday morning, but I'm not losing my life for Jesus. Hear the warning from Jesus. You're going to lose everything eternally. It's him or it's nothing. Would you ask God to open your eyes to the worth of Jesus? I can't imagine God being cold-hearted to that prayer. Lord, help me to see how worthy Jesus is so I would gladly give my life to him. I can't imagine God not wanting to answer that question, that prayer. Here's a fourth possible response. Encouragement. You know that you've got nothing and Jesus is your everything. You've known the pain of death for Jesus. You've faced the rejection of your friends. You've had to stand alone in the crowd. You've been excluded from the inner circle with your peers or in your workplace. You felt like a stranger among your own flesh and blood. You know the pain of death for Jesus. But in all of that living death, you've tasted the joy of fellowship with Jesus, a deepening relationship with him and with his people. And you know the hope of your heavenly reward. And you've found that those things are better than anything else that you've left behind you, anything else that you've lost in the world. So if that's you, be encouraged this morning. Keep on losing your life for Jesus so that you keep on finding your life in him. Farther up and farther in. We're going to take a moment now to be quiet. And we're going to sing a couple of songs at the end of this series. One song in which we pledge ourselves to the cause of Christ. And the second song where we reflect and celebrate on the worth of Jesus. Would you make these songs a prayer that Jesus might be your everything? Take a moment now in the quiet to talk to him about this. 
and then keep talking to him about this as we sing together.